If you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's just great to see everybody come out with one less hour of sleep. And How many of you are usually first service people, but you decided to give yourself a break today? That's okay. That's okay. It's all right. You love Jesus, too. We're, we're grateful for you. We can always tell um, our visitors here at Sunridge because you come on time. And, uh, and some of you wear a suit, so uh, if you want to, like, be anonymous, don't wear a suit and come late, and you'll be fully Sunridge. You'll be fully in with all of us. Um, you know, we use this phrase, uh, larger than life, to describe somebody who just seems to triumph over everything. Um, they, you know, whatever life throws at them, they just, feel, they just seem like they're ready to tackle it. And yet, I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes like I'm the total opposite of that that um, I don't feel larger than life. Often I feel that life is larger than me. Maybe you can relate. You don't feel like Superman. You feel more like underdog. <laughs> and um, now I'm going to like go back in history a little bit because some of you have no idea who that is up, is up on the screen. <laughs> the first service, they know. But I'm going to help you here. Underdog was a cartoon back, back in the day. And uh, he was the opposite of Superman, although he was a superhero. And he would show up, you know, when a damsel was in distress or some dastardly evil person was seeking world domination and the world would come to an end if they were successful. And in would come underdog. And he would say, never fear, underdog is here. Thank you, my people. Bullwinkle, too. Let's talk about bull. No, we won't go there. But, um, and so what was, you know, humorous and endearing about Underdog was, you know, he was totally unlikely to be victorious in whatever thing that he was tackling, and yet he was. Um, you know, an Underdog is just somebody who, like, victory doesn't seem very likely. You know, the... The odds are stacked against them. The point spread is against them in Vegas. And uh, they're expected to lose. They don't have the skills or the tools to, you know, accomplish this thing or win uh, this game or this championship. They're not lar larger than life. Life is larger than them. And, you know, the thing about underdogs is we have an affinity for underdogs, don't we? It's like we love underdogs. We, we love rooting for the underdogs. I wonder if that's because we so often feel like an underdog. And that makes me think that that might be why God has recorded the story of Gideon for us. Because Gideon was an underdog. In fact, if you know this story, you'll kind of giggle when you read this. In Judges 6.12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Snicker, snicker. Mighty warrior? What we'll see over the next five weeks in this series about Gideon, uh, when life is bigger than you, is that the chasm between what was in front of Gideon and his skills and capacities, that chasm was really wide. And yet God chooses him to be the one to lead the Israelites out of the oppression 
from the Midianites. And when God calls him, even though the gap is really wide between what he's capable of and what he, his task is in front of him, God then makes the gap, the gap even wider. So Gideon is a story about a person who, you know, is ordinary. But God does something extraordinary through him. And, and so what we'll learn from the life of Gideon is, is how that God does remarkable things through just ordinary people. And my hope for you through this next five weeks that this series will speak to you, uh, especially if you're an underdog, that through, you know, what we learn from the life of Gideon, that you will have more confidence in God. And because you have that confidence, you'll be able to face some of the things that seem so daunting in front of you. Now, a lot of times in church we talk about uh, believing in God and how we should have faith and believe in God, but like for all the underdogs here today, I want to I change that approach. Instead, I would rather come at it from this angle. Do you ever wonder if God believes in you? I know we're supposed to believe in God, but does God believe in you? Because this one is for the underdogs. And, it, and this main thought from this message today that's in your notes, it's like, this is for every one of you that's an underdog, that God believes in you far more than you believe in yourself. God believes in you far more than you believe in yourself. That is certainly true of those of us that are here today, and we're constantly down on ourselves. You look in the mirror, and you're not happy with what you see. You don't like the way you look. You don't like your hair. You don't like your weight. And, and you don't feel capable for anything. And you look in the mirror, and you feel totally like an underdog. God believes in you. But, you know, God also believes in those of you who stand in front of the mirror and you think, of course God is going to use me. I'm amazing. You look in the mirror and you think, I am totally capable of the things that are in front of me. I am awesome. You know, even you, God believes in you more than you even could possibly believe in yourself. Because God sees far more in us than we see in ourselves. He sees all of our faults. He sees all of our insecurities and our shortcomings. He sees our past. He sees our pride. And he sees our arrogance, too. And he sees our doubt. And he sees even our unbelief. And in spite of all that, well, whoever you are, he believes in you even if you don't believe in him. Now, today I want to, I want to do three things. I want, I want to give you some context to this book that Gideon's story is in. It's called Judges. And then I want to talk a little bit about Gideon and his situation. We're going to, and then out of those things, we are going to come forward with some things that every underdog should know. So first of all, let's just talk about Judges in general. Judges, this is in your notes, is a book in the Bible. It's the seventh book in your Bible. We don't know who the author is. Uh, Jewish tr tradition says that it was written by Samuel, but we don't know. So Judges is a book in your Bible. 
But Judges is also a period of time. Uh, scholars refer to this segment of time, this 350 years between Joshua and Saul as the period of the Judges. And there was, um, you know, 350 years of spiritual deterioration. And we'll talk about the cycle that they went through. But in terms of a timeline here, you have creation and then the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you have Moses and the Exodus. And you have Joshua kind of putting the final uh, touches on taking Canaan, the land of promise. And so the Israelites are in the land flowing with milk and honey, the place that God wanted them to be, but they're surrounded by enemies. So it's a period of time. And then lastly, Judges is a title given to unique leaders in Israelite history. It's a title given to unique leaders in Israelite history. When we think the word judge, we think someone in a black robe sitting you know, on a, uh, at the bench and you know, ruling over the courtyard, courtroom. But um, judge here means leader. These, were, these are like super interesting people uh, that lead the children of Israel. Names like Gideon, we'll look at, but you might have heard the name Samson before, and Eli and Deborah, they're about 15 in all, that cycle through as judges over this period of time. And it's really a fascinating time because of the way they rise to leadership. Uh, early in my career in the fire service, I know I mentioned to you before that I used to be a fireman, but um, they used to do part of a promotional exam for captain was that uh, they would put you in a thing they called leaderless group. They put you with six to eight people, and then they give you a problem, and then you were supposed to solve it together. And so all the HR people were there with their little pencils and their pocket protectors. Sorry if you're in HR about that. But, um, and then they would kind of rate the way you worked in that group. And you didn't know, am, am I supposed to grab leadership and, you know, like exert my power and lead us forward, or am I supposed to work together with others? You never knew, and, and thankfully they got rid of that part of the assessment. But that's kind of what it was like in this period of Judges, because um, Judges 21-25 says that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's what it was. It's like there wasn't anybody that was blessed as being king so much. You didn't, you know, the typical ways people rise to power, either uh, they come from the right family, you know, heredity, or they're the wealthiest person, so they become uh, the king. None of that was in place. And so it was, it's kind of a fascinating study in leadership in this period, how God raises people up in leadership based on a unique or special gift that they have or something that he wants to accomplish. But in, in the end, they were there to bring his people back to him. Because there's a cycle in Judges that scholars have identified. And it goes like this. This is in your notes. There's apathy, then decline, then consequences, repentance, blessing, repeat. That's why it's a cycle. They go around and around in this cycle in Judges. Uh, God blesses them, and life is good, and so that leads them to become apathetic toward God because life is so good. And that apathy 
toward God. They get complacent, and their spiritual life starts to decline, and then God brings consequences because of their sin. And in, in those consequences, they repent. And as they come out of repentance, God blesses them. And then the blessing causes them to become apathetic again. Does that cycle sound familiar to anybody? It does to me. I mean, isn't it easy for the blessings of God to be the thing that kind of just makes us grow complacent? How often do, does God bless us with resources? And the next thing we know, it's like those resources are taking us every place but to God's house, to, to God's people. It's like we have all this stuff that we have to play with, and now we're, we're no longer part, an active part of what God is doing in our church. Our, our marriage is going great, and it's like, man, it's just on autopilot, so we stop reading books or going to conferences. We stop working on our marriage, and then it starts to decline. Our family's dialed. Our kids are all, like, you know, squared away, and, and so we just kind of let things ride, and then, and then we face a challenge with our kids, and all of a sudden, these things bring us back to God. It's a cycle that we are familiar with. One thing I can tell you that in every instance, life without God is always going to be harder. So it's much better to stay within the life that God wants to bless. But Israel is stuck in this cycle, and God is using judges to pull them out of it. Gideon is one. And so in Judges 6, 1, we're going to pick up the story, and we see that this isn't the first rodeo for the Israelites in their complacency leads to you know, uh, rejection of God. Judges 6, 1, writer says, again, that is, here we go again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they did that because they had grown complacent from God's blessing. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. So here, here's what was happening. These marauding uh, other nations that are just east of them, the Midianites and others, they didn't really want to take over the Israelites. They just wanted their stuff. So they would let them thrive for a while. And so their crops would come in, their their livestock would produce, and they'd be kind of like just kind of getting ahead. And then in would swoop the Midianites and take everything. They're much more powerful than them. And, you know, it, like, so they could never get up. They could never get, uh, move forward. It was two steps forward, three steps back constantly for them. It's, it's what, it, you know, a modern-day version of that is like someone who lives right on the edge of poverty. And, you know, it's like one little thing just sets them way back. That's what was happening. And so the Israelites could never thrive under this situation. And so that kind of fear that I'm going to lose what I have. And like at any moment, people could swoop in and take what I've worked so hard to accumulate. They, they just lived under that constantly. And so in verse 6, it says that Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. They repented. And so God... Which, by the way, if you're in that cycle, 
it's much easier to just repent and cry out to the Lord and say, God, you know, I just can't do it. And when you do that, you start yourself back on a cycle toward the fullness of what God has for you. On this day, Gideon is just another one of those Israelites slogging out an ordinary life of fear. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord comes and sits down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. There's a couple things in verse 11 that should stand out. First of all, Gideon is hiding. Typically, you thresh your grain out in the open where the breeze can blow away the chaff, but Gideon is hiding in a wine press. He's down almost underground, and he's threshing his wheat because he doesn't want the Midianites to see that his farm is doing well and he has grain. And the angel of the Lord comes to him, and it's like, I love the way this happens. God comes to us in so many different ways, you know. And so you picture an angel coming, and like he swoops in with wings, and there's the hallelujah chorus going on, and maybe he's on a white horse, and he's got a sword and all. It's like, it says he sits down underneath a tree. And so what he, this conversation he's having with Gideon, it's, it's not a pe- halftime pep talk. He's just kind of sitting down. And in verse 12, this is when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's the tongue-in-cheek. While you're hiding, Gideon, threshing your wheat, I'm going to call you a mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't look like a mighty warrior, not to anybody else, not to himself. But God is going to use him. God is going to use him to free the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. And that's why the angel of the Lord calls him mighty warrior. Because he sees what Gideon cannot see. What Gideon is capable of, but he has no idea that he can. In fact, given his current situation, Gideon has a really hard time believing but God still believes in him. I don't know about you, but often I find myself standing in front of something that just seems bigger than me. Sometimes it's a giant mountain that I think there's no way that I can engage with that. There's no way that I could accomplish that. Sometimes it's just like little bumps in the road, but in each case, like I feel like it's bigger than me. I feel like an underdog. And so I want to take this remaining time that we have and look at the conversation that goes on between Gideon and this angel and what it has to say to every underdog here. This is some, these are three things at least that if you're an underdog, you need to know. Number one, challenges are not a sign that God has abandoned you. Challenges are not a sign that God has abandoned you. When the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty warrior, in verse 13, Gideon says, But sir, 
If the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Where are all these stories? Where's my story? Everyone else has a great story, but I don't have that. But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. You know, pretty much when we get to that point, aren't, the, isn't, aren't those the questions we ask in that sequence? Uh, why has this happened? God, where, where are you in this? And you've abandoned me. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it does to me. See, if, if you have challenges or troubles, first of all, those, those troubles may have nothing to do with you. It may, it may have nothing to do with the choices that you made. It just may be that we live in an evil world, a broken world. It might be that somebody went right rudder on you in a relationship that you cannot control. It might be a calling that God is going to bring to you and you really weren't signing up for it. It might just be the general injustice of a world that isn't following after God. Or the, or the challenges could be entirely your fault. It might be mistakes that you made, choices that you made. Or it might be that you actually signed up and said yes to something that God is calling you to do. It's your fault. You did it. Either way, whether it's something you brought on yourself, whether it's something that you had nothing to do with, the common response to that challenge is, like, why did this happen? Where are you, God? And is God really here? Are you with me? Or, or worse yet, it, sometimes it even leads to people for people to say, I don't believe in God anymore. And the truth is, life, life has challenges. Some brought on by ourselves, some not. Life has challenges for you if you're a parent, if you're a student, you have challenges in your career, you have challenges in your relationship. And it's pretty easy when things don't go smoothly for us to go, well, I knew it. God's done with me. You know, next Sunday we're going to talk about signs and wonders. In fact, the title of my message is, Lord, give me a sign. And I bet you've said that before. I bet you've prayed that. I have. But, you know, signs can be unreliable. And if Gideon is reading the signs of his life right now, he's drawing the total wrong conclusion to what's going on. God has not abandoned you. And all of us need constant reminding of that because that's just the way we think. If you read through your Bible and you pay close attention to anybody that God used, anybody that, uh, that God had, a, had something for them to do, anybody that just like lived life, a life of faith, they faced challenges. And it didn't matter how great they turned out to be, they always needed that reassurance that God believes in them, and that they are not abandoned. Joshua, the one who brought the Israelites into the land 
that God had promised in Joshua 1.5, he needed reminding. God says to him, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if it's our sin that makes us feel abandoned, I want to say to you that God's answer to your sin is not abandonment, it's the gospel. God sent his son to die for our sins. That's his answer to all of the poor choices that you've made. God leans toward people who have sinned. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. God doesn't run away from us. He sees us just the way we are, and he doesn't leave us. If you've responded to the gospel, if you've, if you've said yes to faith, and by the way, if, if you're considering that, you should just stop and think. It's like, I don't know what your preconceived notions are about what it means to be a Christian, but a Christian is just somebody who has acknowledged that they're broken and has, has received the free gift that Jesus has given us, his, his life on the cross. We're forgiven of our sins. And you can't out-sin God's forgiveness. But if you've done that, then Paul writes in Romans 8, 39, that not, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you feel like an underdog, if you feel like there's this thing in front of you, this giant wall that you can never get over, if you're in the middle of a divorce, or you can sense divorce coming, or you're recovering from divorce, you're retooling your career, you never thought that you would have to start over at this age. If you're a parent and you're just you're struggling with a child that's, that's far from God, if you're pursuing some big, hairy goal that like, you just feel like this is the thing that God wants me to do, God does not abandon people. He has not abandoned you. Number two, if you're an underdog, be reminded of this, that all you need to do is take the next step. All you need to do is take the next step. So let's have a moment of confession here. Church is good for confession. How many of you were peakers at Christmas time? You know what I'm talking about? You like would find your presence. Come on, let's come on now. Confession is good for the soul. Put those hands up, put them up high, put them up in the air like you just don't care. Thank you for confessing that. The rest of you, I don't know. You have no curiosity or you're just a liar. I don't know. <laughs> I was a peaker. I could not stand and not know where my presents were, and my parents thought that they could hide it. You grow up in a house that's like 1,200 square feet, you're going to find the presents if you have the, the motivation. And then I knew how to peel them apart and look to see, so pretty much Christmas morning I knew what was coming. And, and that's a great example of how most of us are about life. We want to know everything. We want to have it all figured out. We want to have it planned you know, I go to marriage counseling, and before I even agree to go to marriage counseling, I want to make sure that my spouse is going to respond. It's like, but what about this? It's like, I don't know if I'm going to go because I'm not sure they will get it. Uh, and we just try to figure every little step out. I'm, I'm in the middle of my career. It's like, I, I just want to make sure if I do this, that like all these, we just want, our, we just want the whole list. I just watched this great movie called Free Solo. Anybody seen this? 
Yeah, so if you haven't seen it, it's a recommendation from Britt. You're going to love it. It's going to make your palms sweat as you watch it because it's a documentary of Alex Honnold, who was the only person so far to free climb El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite, and he climbs it without a rope. But what you, what you watch is Honnold worked on this for years with a rope. I, I, you couldn't even hang me 30 feet on a rope. I wouldn't do it. These people are amazing, but he was so meticulous. By the time he climbed it, he knew every, every path he was going to take. And in fact, he kept every little move in a book. He wrote every step down. It was down to like thumb switch to the left, finger pull. I mean, like he's holding on to little grains of sand, you know, or grains of granite, I guess. You know, just crazy stuff. He knew everything he was going to do. And I don't want to spoil it. you got to watch it. What happens? But um, I, sometimes I want my life to be like that. I just want the list, have it all figured out. But, you know, climbing El Cap is a repeatable thing. Life isn't like that. We don't, we don't get every little step by step. And so here's what the angel of the Lord said to Gideon. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? He says, Go in the strength you have now. He didn't give him any details. Sometimes I think when we have this thing in front of us that scares us, there's a time to wait. And there's a time to seek God. But there's also a time to stop waiting around for what God is going to do for you and to start asking what God is going to do through you. Look at how often Jesus said, go. He said, you have a problem with your brother? Go and be reconciled. A Roman soldier comes to you and unjustly says, if that Roman soldier asks you to go a mile, go with them too. You're my disciples. I'm going to leave. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, and I want you to go into the world and preach the gospel. You have a, a son who's ill, and you come to me. I want you to go, and it will be done. And in each one of those instances, as Jesus says go, he doesn't give any details. You just have to take the next step. You have to trust in him, like he said in John 14, 1. The angel says to Gideon, I'm sending you. Go in the strength you have. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who prayed so many times that God would take away this thing he called a thorn in the flesh. And God eventually says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Isn't that another way of saying go in what you have right now? Go in the strength that you have. I don't know if you've ever felt like God was sending you. I, I'm confident that you felt that the thing in front of you is larger than you. 
Go in the strength that you have. You just got a prognosis, and now they're lining out the next steps for you. Go in the strength that you have. You got that promotion at work, and it feels like, like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm ready for this next step. Go in the strength you have. You got a conversation that's going to be uncomfortable coming, and you've been avoiding it, and it, but it needs to happen. Go in the strength that you have. You're getting ready for the L.A. Marathon. It's getting serious now, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you, at mile 18, you don't think you're going to make mile 19? Go home and take a hot bath. No. <laughs> Go in the strength you have. God's been prompting your heart to become a first-time giver here at Sunridge. And, you know, you've been, you love this church. You love being ministered to here. You've heard messages about giving and being generous, and you think, oh, there's no way I can do that. I can't give 10%. Well, start somewhere. Go. Go in the strength you have. Your marriage is falling apart, and you think, you know, like it's not even worth it. You don't think you can take the next step. You're, you're all concerned about whether they're going to fully embrace the counseling that you're signing up for, and you wonder, like, you know, what if, all, if I get taken advantage of? What if all of a sudden? Go in the strength you have. You become a brand new parent. You got your first baby, and you think you're not up for it? You're not. <laughs> you have two kids, and you just, you got a third on, you're not ready for that. Go in the strength that you have. You're, your heart is aching for that child that's far from God. Go in the strength you have because he is sending you. The reason why I can say that so confidently that we can go, that we can take the next step is this last point. If you're an underdog, you should know that God doesn't expect you to do it without him. God doesn't expect you to do it without him. Look at what uh, Gideon says, but Lord, like, go. Go in the strength you have. But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my family. Gideon rolls out all of the reasons why he can't be the person. I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm not going to be able to amass a big enough army. He's going to learn something about that. Um, I'm the weakest one, even of my weak tribe. I'm not the person. I don't have the skill pack to do this. He's just going through the list like of all the reasons why he can't be the person that God is telling to go. I'm sending you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like something that you've told yourself that you even maybe even stood in the mirror and looked at yourself and said, I'm not ready for that. Maybe you've prayed it lately. It's not my circus. It's not my monkeys. Why me, God? You're, the, the, the place you are in life right now, there's this thing that you need to do, and there's a great gap between your capacity to do it. That's awesome. You are right where God wants you because he wants to remind you that he's not asking you to do that thing alone, that he will be with you. 
I think about my life. It's like, you know, the, the things that I've done. And then like four years ago, when I, five years ago, when I was contemplating becoming a pastor again, it's like, man, I, I didn't think I was up for that. Neither did many of you. And we've all agreed that that's proven to be true, right? <laughs> it's like, Who could ever do that? It's like, I have to get up every week and I have to say what God has said. And, you know, no pressure. Just everybody's soul is riding on it. Man. And I think about just the stuff that we've had to tackle since I've become pastor here. And whether it's budget shortfalls or personnel issues or expectations of people in the church or relationships or like um, establishing standards for our leaders, having uncomfortable conversations that need to be had for the sake of Christ, being able to uh, distinguish between what isn't good advice and what is. It's like there was no way that I had the tools to do that, and yet the whole time I felt like God was saying, go. And he didn't give me any details. I had to walk through the process just like everybody else, and I kept thinking how humiliating it was going to be if they didn't pick me, how, what a big relief it would be if they did not. It's like all these, you know, I'm letting you into my head. It's crazy in there, but um, you have your own situations. You have things that are just bigger than you. You just don't get to talk about them in front of, you know, four or five hundred people. But you have them. God is never asking, asks us to do that on our own. And when Gideon says, you know, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. God says, oh yeah, I forgot about that. No. His answer in verse 16 is I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. If, if, if any of us could have a common prayer every morning, the first time our eyes pop open, it would be just this reminder that God is with us. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm with you to the end of the world. Has the world ended yet? If, if it has, I didn't get the memo. And if it hasn't ended yet, and my life hasn't ended yet, then unless Jesus didn't tell the truth, God is with me. He is with me, and he's sending me. Let me ask you something. If you could choose for the rest of your life, to choose perfect tranquility and peacefulness and no challenges or the presence of God, a constant sense of the presence of God, which would you choose? I choose uh, tranquility and peace too, but, but actually the an that's not the answer, okay? Because you don't get that life. It's like a, it's a trick question. Nobody gets that life. But 
as Christians, we can have, we do have, the presence of God. You see, it's not how big the challenge is in front of us. It's how big our God is. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, if he calls you to it, that is God, he will be faithful in giving you what you need to do it. God does not call us to do something in which he will not be with us in every step of the way and in which he will not equip us. He's going to be with us, and he will equip us. Underdogs become big dogs when God is with them. So, you got a big thing out in front of you that you think you can't overcome, or you got a little thing that's going to be like a little hiccup this week. God has not abandoned you in that challenge. And all he asks you to do is take the next step to go in the strength that you have, and you can do that because he will be with you. Let's pray.